If you've listened to Shameless before, you'll know that these chats are normally called In Conversations, interviews with influential Australians about their lives, their careers, and what they've learned along the way. And we love doing them. But these are unusual times, and to reflect those times, we will be moving to In Isolation episodes for a little while. Interviews with women and men we know and love, not from a studio, but from their bedroom and lounge rooms wearing bed socks and pyjamas connected via video link. We will still be asking about their successes and failures, but also about this weird world we've found ourselves in. How are they coping? Where are they finding morsels of light? And how have their views of the world changed when day-to-day life looks nothing like it used to? Because how we respond to a tragedy says a lot about who we are. Are we optimists, pessimists, something in between? And in search for meaning, what can a global pandemic uncover about ourselves? Hello and welcome to this In Isolation episode of Shameless with the delightful Brooke Boney. You likely know Brooke from her post as entertainment reporter for the Today Show, a job she has been in for just over a year. Brooke is a Gamilaroi woman who grew up in Muswell Brook in New South Wales who, in her own words, hustled her way from working as a journalist at NITV to the ABC and Triple J all the way to morning television. In this chat, we cover everything from what Brooke thought her year was going to look like to how she's coping in these strange times and why she now wishes she spent a little less time on her phone when catching up with her family earlier this year. Oh, and how she really hopes when the curtain is lifted from the chaos, she cares a little less about what people think of her. Brooke is funny and thoughtful and we cannot wait for you to hear everything she is thinking and feeling right now. Here's Brooke. I'm in Sydney And it's really bloody lovely weather, which sort of sucks because we're all stuck inside. It is not lovely weather in Melbourne where we are recording. I'm in like the world's biggest, warmest jumper. Winter is officially hit. So enjoy that sunshine while it filters through your window. You do look very snuggly. And look, I don't want to make you any more jealous, but I sat outside before and I can feel myself getting a little bit burnt. So I had to come inside. (gasps) Oh. It has been the most miserable weather, like on top of everything going on right now, as if we need rainy grayness. I'm so annoyed at Melbourne because we were doing so well. I feel like we began this year so well. We were like even outshining Sydney and the weather stakes and now we've just turned to absolute shit. But I feel like that's fitting with the world, you know, like I wish I was talking to mum over the weekend and she was like, I just hope it rains all weekend because then you don't feel bad about being inside. But when it's nice outside, you're like, oh, I could be on a beach. Mind you, I'm pretty lazy on the weekends, so I would probably be laying on the couch anyway, even if I wasn't in isolation. So, yeah, you always want what you can't have, don't you? I think that's the theme of, like, this entire isolation time is for introverts being like, oh, shit, I actually didn't want to be inside. But, Brooke, I wanted to get into the interview with you now because what we're actually going to do with this is we're going to split it into a few sections. We've got four sections that we wanted to talk to you about. And the first one we wanted to start with is a very obvious title of before, like before everything went down, before we found ourselves in isolation together, we wanted to touch on what life was like before that. So we wanted to start where we always usually start. And that is what was your childhood like? What were the standout memories for you? Do you know, it's so weird thinking of that because 
you know, so much of that stuff is tied into the way that I've been thinking about this crisis. So, like, when I was growing up, we didn't have very much. It was me and my mum and my four younger brothers and sisters and then my mum fostered my brother Tyrell when after I'd already left home, but, you know, he's he was just a teenager then. So it was pretty hard, like pretty hard. You know, imagine being someone who earns like 30 or 40 grand a year and then you've got, you know, six kids to try to feed as well. Like it wasn't very easy, but you know what? It's prepared me very well for living on two-minute noodles and tea. It's excellent training. I can whip up a meal out of like literally nothing. I feel like I'm, you know, I'm pro at this, at the whole like nothing in the supermarket, nothing in the cupboard sort of lockdown. But, you know, in all seriousness, it was pretty hard. And, you know, I think that if we were in that situation and something like this were to happen, we would have been absolutely fucked. And so I think about all the people who are going through that now and all of those people whose lives are really difficult and, you know, as much as I feel super grateful for, you know, having enough toilet paper and somewhere safe to be and a job to go to every day, also feel pretty, pretty awful that there are people who are in that situation right now. I guess like anyone, you know, things are tough sometimes. And, you know, I've also got some really happy memories from my childhood as well. I'm really, really lucky to have such a a wonderful family who all love each other a lot. And I think that those are the sorts of things that I'm really really grateful for at the moment were you always an ambitious kid did you always have your sights set on the media and like having a big glittery career was that always on the cards for you no like I'm still surprised about that stuff it all feels very weird sometimes I had a moment where I was thinking about Hanson because I loved Hanson I don't know how old you girls are but like I loved them so much I was sort of convinced that I would marry Taylor Hanson someday. And I remember, like, you know, obviously, like I was saying, we're quite poor. And when I got to meet Hanson last year, I was just like, oh, my God, I wish that I could, like, go back and tell myself that one day I would meet Taylor Hanson. And (laughs) (laughs) I don't think that I ever imagined that I would be in a job where I got to talk to people who I really admired all the time when I was little. And... I think part of that is the burden of low expectations that people have about Aboriginal kids and kids from the country. You know, like all of the things that make life difficult already are compounded when you have people just not expecting very much from you. So like teachers saying that you're not smart enough or treating you differently or I had a lot, I was really lucky. Like I did have a lot of really, really good teachers who believed in me. But, you know, to think that the things that I aspired too when I was younger would be like I don't know marrying a coal miner and opening up a hairdressing business or doing an apprenticeship and there's certainly nothing wrong with that I think that that's an excellent life but it's certainly really different from the dreams that I have now and I think that like limiting someone's idea of themselves is is really really sad it's an awful thing to do to people and we seem to do it a lot to kids of colour Talk to us then about those little moments. What were the little moments that were pivotal in getting you from being someone who wanted a career in media to someone with a thriving career? Like how did that happen for you? So I studied at UTS. I went through the like the John Bunner Indigenous program. So like that was a really excellent support network. But you have to remember that like no one in my family had 
or like in my lineage. My uncle went to university in Armadale maybe like 10 or maybe 20 years ago or something. But like, you know, my mum hadn't done it. My grandparents hadn't done it. I hadn't seen anyone in my dad's family do that. So like going to university is a brand new thing. It's something that you can't quite conceive of as an Aboriginal kid because, you know, you learn things from the people around you whether or not it's a conscious thing. And so you can only sort of be what you can see. And so going to university as an Aboriginal kid is something that's really challenging. And so having support networks like the Jumbana group or like whatever the university association is for Aboriginal kids in each city is, they're so important because they help you get through. And so I went to uni with their help and then I started journalism and then I once I got in, I just bloody hustled. I just kept asking people for jobs. I did the Koori Radio Breakfast Show when I was at uni and I worked at the ABC as well and I did shifts at Trenary too. So I just worked and worked and worked. And then before I didn't finish, I think I was like at the end of my second year, I was doing an ABC like cadetship program while I was studying and then NITV asked me if I wanted to go and work for them. And I said yes. And then a couple of months later, they asked me if I wanted to go to Canberra and be their political correspondent. And I was absolutely shitting myself. But I said yes. And I went. And then the same week that I started, Kevin Rudd decided that he wanted to try to roll Julia Gillard. What a week <laughs> to begin. I was like, you people are crazy. Like, what is going on? And I just remember... Like, I was such a political nerd anyway. Like, I loved finding out about what was going on down there. And then to be a part of it, I was just like, this is actually nuts. I feel like I'm in an episode of House of Cards. And then he was successful. And then he called an election campaign, like, pretty much straight away. It's pretty incredible. I want to know, it sounds like you're the kind of person who doesn't only put your hands up for things, but you then seize every opportunity and you say yes to every opportunity that comes up. What is it about you or what is it about your upbringing that has fostered that sense of, I guess, seizing every opportunity? I think because there are so many, um, thank you for saying that, by the way, that's very nice of you to say. It makes it sound like I'm a real (laughs) go-getter. But there's so many opportunities as well that you kick yourself about, you know, like that you lie awake at night thinking about like, oh, if only I was more prepared for that or I should have submitted that thing or applied for that scholarship or applied for that award or whatever. Like everyone has that sort of feeling where you're not trying hard enough or where you should have tried harder or whatever. But I just don't want to go back to being poor and being like how I grew up. I always have that thing where I'm like, okay, if I don't do it, then, you know, it's going to be even harder for the next person. And I want to make it easier for them. And, you know, I think that that's a pretty good motivation to just keep trying and trying and trying. And, you know, I've been doing these early mornings for like three and a half years now. You know, when your alarm goes off at 4 o'clock in the morning or 4.30 or whatever and you don't feel like doing it, there's you have to have something bigger than yourself or, like, bigger than getting a paycheck or bigger than being famous or whatever or respect from your peers or whatever that keeps you going. Otherwise, you just can't. I wanted to talk to you about this year in particular. So it's been a year since you started on the Today Show and you made the jump from Triple J and it's a very big job. All of the country's eyes were on you. I'm interested then after a year in the job, at the very start of this year, what you wanted out of 2020 before the whole year turned to shit. Wow. So I started out the year knowing that I'd be heading off to LA for a couple of months and that there'd be like a whole bunch of 
great movies coming out and you know like that this would be a year when I could really hit my strides after a year of trying to settle in and find my feet and figure out the culture and and how things are done and you know it's a new job like you said it's like a lot of pressure it's a huge shift from what I was doing before so I was just like oh I just want to really nail it this year like this year I just want to get really really good at my job and so I spent six nearly seven weeks in LA and you know it's it's different from being over here because there's like red carpets every day and there's like all of these opportunities to do all of these great interviews and to sort of be a part of the world the entertainment world that I spend so much time like talking about and thinking about and you know doing interviews over the phone or over Skype or you know long distance or whatever and there you're face to face and you can build rapport and you can build relationships and, you know, get access that you wouldn't have if you were here. So for me, that's what this year was going to be. It's pretty hard to kind of think about that, isn't it? And think about what you were planning for the year and then look at how it is now. And I think that's what a lot of people are grappling with. And what I find interesting is that I think we all had different moments. Like each of us had a different moment of realization where we went, holy fuck, this isn't just for the next week. This isn't just for the next fortnight. This is a new normal and I don't know how long that's going to be for. And I want to know, what was that moment for you? Do you remember a day or a news bulletin where you sat down and thought to yourself, oh, my God, things are going to be really different for me? When I was in the US, I was pretty terrified and I was just starting to, like, read all of this stuff about this, you know, place in in China that had, you know, this virus that was getting around and it was terrifying and then I was like watching these numbers grow and grow and grow and I said to my producer Tom like mate do you think this is something we should be worried about like should we go home because this seems like it's going to travel really fast and you know we're on planes all the time you know we're catching a flight nearly every week he was like no 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 it's nothing to worry about and then we had a trip to go over to Miami for the weekend for the Super Bowl for some work and I was like really really paranoid and I had like the little bag of wipes and I was like, you know, wiping stuff down and like not wanting to touch anything. And I was like, I think that this is going to be a big thing and maybe it won't be as big in Australia because we're a little bit disconnected from the rest of the world, but it's going to be huge. And so I was really scared from really early on. And then I can't remember an exact moment when we were back here, but I've been taking it pretty seriously, like, the whole time and I think probably one of the moments when I realized that it was like in my neighborhood and that it felt really scary was I went down to Woolies and there was just nothing. Um, I find that so interesting that you seem to be so on top of it because if you're talking about the Super Bowl when was the Super Bowl that would have been what Jan Feb? Yeah I think it was in Feb. Because that seems quite early to me were you kind of feeling like you're pulling your hair out a little bit that you were taking this seriously and you were quite worried about it and yet probably most people around you were not at all because I feel like this was a thing where a lot of people fell into two separate camps. You either took it really seriously early on or you were in massive denial slash thought that everyone was being a bit cynical and everything would be fine. I was pretty scared from the beginning, but I think it was mostly because I was like out of my environment. Like I was in the US and I was like, we could be trapped here. This is really scary. And, you know, the US is like, it's a crazy place. Like it's scary at the best of times, let alone to like, you know, have some sort of weird global panic going on. You know, you see everything that's happening in New York and it's sort of hard to believe that this would be able to happen in like a, a Western democratic country, because you would think that 
people wouldn't let infrastructure get so bad and health systems get so bad or, you know, elect someone who doesn't take science as seriously as they should. Like that's that's really, really concerning that, you know, we're in this situation. Oh, I think that's been one of the most stark things for a lot of us is just watching on in absolute helpless horror, like being like there's nothing any of us can do. And I guess that brings us to our next section, which is talking about the now and the present. On a day-to-day sense, I wanted to ask you about your work. Like how is your work on the Today Show changed? I know you said you're not nearly travelling. I mean, you're not travelling at all. But what is, I guess, people would be so interesting on the behind the scenes of television when this happens. It is really interesting to see how quickly things shifted at work. Obviously, we had like Rita Wilson in. And so, you know, we were one of the first workplaces to be touched by coronavirus. You know, we sort of, I, I sort of knew that, you know, it would affect us eventually, but it happened to us sort of before it happened to everyone else. They implemented like hygiene measures really, really quickly. And then, you know, within a really short amount of time as well, like we were split up into different teams and different studios and things like that, because the media is an essential service. Every morning when people wake up, they like switch on the TV now to to figure out what's going on with the world. So you know, it's a really, really important job that the Today Show is doing in keeping people informed, but also like not making people freak out or panic or, or whatever. It touched us really, really early on and we sort of figured it out straight away. Like seeing how quickly people can turn around and be innovative with how they create content is pretty amazing. Setting up different studios, but also being able to like, you know, shoot out of people's homes, making Skype interviews work. We would never have even thought that I'd be interviewing Dua Lipa over FaceTime, you know, a couple of months ago. It's crazy. But like record labels and movie studios have been very, very helpful in that regard. And so like now I've been doing like a lot of interviews from home. So my routine is sort of the same because I'm still going into work still doing all of the stuff that and that needs to be done to you know get us to air and to make content but it's just a lot harder there are so many more steps in the process to like speak to someone on the phone or speak to someone over the internet and then cut that into a story because every day we have a big interview that we put to air or like in for, for my round on entertainment we do and figuring out time zones and then sending screenshots or screen grabs or whatever and editing it together with everything else that we've got going on It's sort of the same, but it's just a bit more difficult. I was sort of hoping that at the beginning of this that it would just be super easy and I'd be like, oh, great, I'm working from home. Now I'm like, oh, I just want to go into work and do this, like, It's so true. I feel like the novelty wears off so quickly. We're like, oh, amazing. I'll just work in my pajamas and you do that for about two days. And then you're like, okay, I'm itching to get out of the house now. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I feel very lucky that I've got a job to go to firstly. But secondly, that I have a reason to get dressed every day. Otherwise, I wouldn't. I actually wouldn't. I'm so lazy. I cannot express to you how lazy I am on the weekends. Yeah, I'll, I'll be glad when things go back to normal. But, you know, it sounds sort of silly and like a bit, I don't know, a bit selfish to be complaining about like, oh, my interviews are so much harder. How am I supposed to do interview Dua Lipa and do my <laughs> You have to sort of put it into context. Yeah, totally. I'm interested that you brought that up because one thing that Zara and I have noticed recently is that there's a lot of resentment for celebrities who are perhaps a bit tone deaf in how they're communicating, how they're feeling about this crisis. And I want to know, as an entertainment reporter, someone who interviews celebrities all day, every day, 
Do you understand that? Do you think that there is this resentment towards celebrities right now? And why do you think that is? I think people are collectively going through this huge trauma and it is very, very difficult for people to bring their emotions um, or their experience to words or to funnel it into the place that it needs to be going, particularly when the thing that we're all traumatised by is invisible and we can't really blame anyone for it. I know that there are a lot of people who, you know, are using it as an excuse to be racist, which is very, very unkind and very, very stupid. But I think I see similar things when you have, like, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are really traumatised and some people are like, oh, they're so angry. Why are they so angry? Or, like, why are they always, like, being negative about something? And it's because this is, like, trauma and you have to funnel it towards something. Otherwise you funnel it, like, at yourself. And I think that, you know, yes, there definitely are a lot of celebrities who are really tone deaf, but I think people are just going a little bit stir crazy and there's a lot of emotion that doesn't have a proper place to belong. It's like misplaced anger and frustration, I think. Also, remember that, like, this is to celebrities who are listening. Remember that people are going through really fucking hard times. Don't be fucking selfish. Have a bit of compassion for the fact that, you know, you have a safe house to be in and you have food to eat. And, yes, it's lovely that everyone's baking bread and posting photos of it. There are a lot of people who would be really hungry right now or who would be living in places where their relationships are unsafe or they're scared of their partner or, they, you know, their kids are misbehaving or something. Like it is really, really tough and that sort of space is, is really difficult to manage and... It seems like the only patience that people have or the only content that people have patience towards at the moment is stuff that's really earnest or stuff that's really funny. And if it's Mm. neither of those things, then I don't know, probably skip it to yourself. You did touch on sort of overwhelming feelings that other people are feeling, which is often anger and frustration, but I wanted to know what the predominant emotion you are feeling right now would be. How would you label it? I think, like, right now I feel pretty good because I just have now and I have got a full tummy. But, like, overwhelmingly over the last few weeks I've felt scared, really, really scared. I don't know that any of us have been through something like this where you're sort of scared that everyone that you love is going to die or get really sick or, you know, the fear of, like, losing your job or not being able to pay your bills, like, it's it's unfathomable for most of us and I think for people who are, you know, who have been poor before or who have been scared before, it's especially triggering because, you know, it's their familiar feelings but this is like a totally unfamiliar experience. How are you working through that fear then? What are you leaning on and what is bringing little pockets of joy in every day for you? Well, I think doing exercise every day for me is really, really important. Like that's something where you can actually feel yourself being in a better mood like right away. Eating healthy is also like a really big thing for me. Like if I have a lot of takeout or if I just don't look after myself or, you know, like I really enjoy the process of cooking as well. So if I don't cook or, you know, do stuff that feels nice, then then I end up feeling really scared and anxious. But, you know, it's the stuff that we know works, like yoga and meditation. My gym has been doing classes online And it's a godsend. And I've been one of those girls who works out in a sports bra. (laughs) (laughs) 
I would never do that at the actual gym because I would feel too embarrassed. Not that I'm shaming anyone else for doing it. Like, please go right ahead. Uh, I admire you, but I'm never one of those people. And then the other day I was like, oh, my God, there's no one here. I'm going to work out in a fucking bra and tights because I'm a bad bitch. Downward fuck, <laughs> <Stop>, y'all. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm doing a lot of those um, for the yoga classes on my online gym and I bought some weights. So I've been trying to do like training sessions. I'm, I'm not as into like training as what I am into yoga though. But my pugs have been really, really lovely as well in like keeping me happy. And I've been letting them do stuff like have naps with me on the couch, which I would never normally do because they smell so bad. Like they're really bad. <laughs> And now I'm just like, oh, just come and hug mom. And so we just like have naps together on the couch and it's so beautiful. That's the best. Coming up after the break, what Brooke has learned about herself in these last few weeks. But first, a word from today's sponsor. We did touch on the things that are changing for one sports bra, secondly, you know, dog sleeping with you on the couch. But I wanted to ask you in this next section about the future, you know, thinking out of this period, and I know it's so hard to get our heads out of it, but there will be an end point if you think there will be any lasting changes to the way we live after this. I think that a lot of people are going to be pretty sad through this. And I think that we are very, very lucky that we're able to bring our experience to words and that we have the opportunity to speak openly about being sad or confused or angry or scared. But there are a lot of people who feel really ashamed about those emotions. And I think that that's going to create a very complex environment for people during this crisis, but also after it, because this isn't something that you just sort of, you know, the doors are swung open and we just go back out into the streets and party. Like this is, this is like, it's trauma, it's real, and it's very big. So I think that that's going to be something that has enduring effects. The other part of it is the economic impact. So I think that there will be a lot of us who come out of this and don't have jobs, and it's going to take a while for it to bounce back. And so I think that that feeling that we've always had where, you know, if you work hard, then the world is a good and fair place and you'll get a job and, you know, everything will be fine. I think that some of that will be taken away from us and it'll be a bit more scary and we'll feel a bit more like, insecure and we'll be like oh you know back in my day we were grateful for this or we were you know blah 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 I think that that will be something that's a pretty big pretty big hangover from this I think also like the budget is pretty concerning because I think that all of the measures are absolutely necessary to be able to get us through but it's going to take forever to pay back and I think the ones who are paying it back will be us and so a lot of funding for things like arts or scholarship programs for Indigenous kids, those are, it feels like those are always the things that go first. And so, like, that will be something that might not be there when we come through the other side. And I think people are going to be really scared to, like, hug and touch again after this. Cause you, like, it's an interesting conversation because Zara and I have even tossed back and forth the idea that the handshake might die, that after all this yeah that we might become more like for example like Japanese culture where it's not really something that you do that you greet each other and touch each other when you meet that perhaps we do kind of greet each other from a distance now 
Or maybe we could just run up to each other and do like a titty bounce, you know. <laughs> Primarily, it's a way for females to greet each other, for us to show appreciation towards each other. I'm just putting it out. I love it. It's on the record now. What about the good stuff, you know, the stuff that could change for the better? I hope that people are more grateful for what they have more thoughtful about others who don't have as much and there's so much goodwill getting around you know people are like we're all in this together but that sort of stuff I really really like but I just sometimes I think that maybe some people are all in it together but they don't think a lot about people who are a lot less fortunate than them like homeless people. I wonder speaking about you more specifically what have you learned about your own priorities in all of this? Has this experience kind of shifted what you want out of life a little bit? Yeah, I think it really has. I think that I spend a lot of time thinking about like what others are doing or thinking. And, you know, I've thought about while I've been here, all of the times that I've been home, like to Musselbrook for the weekend and spent the whole time on the phone or been texting some dead shit guy or something that I liked or, you know, worrying about stuff that doesn't matter because during this time all I want to do is be around my family and like be near my nan and pop and last time I was home mum was like make sure you stop in and see nan and pop before you leave town and I was like yeah 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 I will and then I didn't and then like now we're in this and I'm like oh my god this is like from one of those movies where you learn a lesson (laughs) learn the lesson it's shifted the way that I think about my oh well, like yeah just my priorities I guess like I, I just want to be around my family I love them a lot I want to spend more time with them that's like quality and like meaningful time not just like being there but also it just sort of makes me think about how fickle everything is right like mm. seeing normally when you see like really beautiful people or influences or like cool parties or whatever and you're like oh maybe I should have the energy to go out or maybe I should go and do this or like maybe I should you know wear that dress or something And then now none of it really matters. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it raises an interesting dilemma for influencers as well. I mean, like there aren't those events for them to go out and I wonder if influencer culture will kind of crumble at the same time as some celebrity, like aspects of celebrity culture will and that it's not as relatable to be watching people unbox designer gifts or makeup anymore. Like people don't want that kind of content, like you said. It's always sort of baffled me though, like that sort of culture, to be honest. I don't know. I guess in a sense it's it's fun to see people get presents <laughs> and imagine that you're getting presents. I mean, I don't know. I guess that's how it works. And, you know, there's always that, like, thing where it's, like, aspirational and, you know, then you go out and buy it and, you know, regret racking up bills on your credit card or whatever. But now when you see people who are incredibly privileged telling others what to think, people are like, hey, you in your six-bedroom house with your bloody maids and your, you know, cooks and stuff why don't you just shove it I'm not going to listen to this coronavirus crisis because you're telling me to stay home in my shitty one bedroom apartment that has mold in it and you're staying home with all of your beautiful friends in your swimming pool so mm. don't know what to do like I think that people are starting to see through it a little bit more Brooke we want to know what have you learned about yourself in all of this what has this crisis shown you about your personality or how you cope with things Well, I've always, like, thought of myself as someone who can cope with a lot. I think that what this year has taught me is that I like thinking about others more than I like thinking about myself. 
and I should just sort of confidently go in that direction and, and not sort of worry about that too much. Does that make sense? I don't know. Like, I guess I'm susceptible to the same sorts of things that make other people feel a bit insecure as well. And now I'm just like, sort of like what I was saying before, I guess. It just doesn't matter. So I just don't really care anymore. And so much of it is really, really fickle. And the things that I care about and the things that make me feel good are good things. And I'm lucky that they're the things that make me feel good. You know, helping other people, being around my family, making people feel good. And so I think that I'll come out of this feeling more like myself and feeling more okay with that. I mean, look at me. I'm wearing a sports bra when I'm working out. I've hit peak me. This is the real Brooke coming on out. I I know this might be a bit of repetition for your answers, Brooke, but I still am interested because what we ask everyone in all of these interviews is how do you define success? And I'm interested if your definition of success has changed and if it's less tied to your career now and much more tied to your day-to-day, how you treat people, you know, your relationships with people. Excellent question. Thank you for asking. I think that so much of it in the past has been tied to the way that other people think of me. And I think that's what I was sort of tapping into with that last answer is like I have been trying not to care so much about what other people think of my career or think of my choices or think of how I look or how I dress or, you know, where I live or what I do and have it tied more to the things that make me feel good because the values are pretty good anyway. So, you know, if they're, if they're the things that are getting me through, then, you know, that's, that's a pretty good, pretty good place to be. And so like when I'm taught, when I'm thinking about like how I measure success going forward, it's definitely a lot about how I treat younger women and how I work with younger women because I think that that sort of thing is really, really important and making space for others is really, really important. And, you know, helping other people achieve their potential, I think, is something that makes me feel really, really good. And that's, I think, how I'll measure myself going forward. It sounds like really cliche to be like, oh, it's not about money. It's not about viewers. It's not about what job you have. But I, I truly think that after this experience, it's not as much about those things. And I think once you sort of free yourself from the burden of those things, you sort of can lean into more of who you really are. I think that's a beautiful way of putting it. Brooke, we want everyone to leave these episodes feeling like they've got something, they've picked up something, not only about your life, but something from your mind that will make their life better. And I want to know some of your recommendations. So the first one is what are you shamelessly wasting the most time on right now, whether that's reading, watching, or listening to something? Ozark. And I watched all of that of Tiger King in like a day and a half. Oh so God, like, it's so addictive. It's so addictive, but it's so weird. Like I started being like, oh, haha, hillbillies. And then I was like, oh, this is about intergenerational poverty. Oh, and like drug abuse and like, you know, other weird stuff. And so then I left it being like, this isn't fun anymore. It hooks people in with the craziness and then you finish it and you're like, oh, hang on a second. It's sort of like making a murderer. Then you just like get to the end and you're like, the world is an unfair place. Why? You feel like you've been- Actually, that is so true. It has such a similar vibe to Making a Murderer. I remember clicking on Making a Murderer and be like, there's no hope. Like, I feel so hopeless about this situation because of the intergenerational poverty. And you're so right. That's such a theme that links the two together. Yeah. 
Exactly. It's like these poor, I don't know, American hillbillies who are like addicted to meth and get entangled in the justice system. It's disgusting. It makes me feel so sick. But anyway, uh, we're trying to uplift people here. You know, <laughs> tell me to- about Ozark. What is Ozark and why do you like it? Ozark is just as bad. Oh, well, it's good. It's really, really good. But it's a show about this guy who like launders money for a Mexican drug cartel, and then he's like family is like there getting involved, and they're like you know heavy into drug dealing, and it makes you feel like you're somehow implicated, and so you feel like dirty by association or dirty by proxy and so then I'm watching like oh why (laughs) but okay on an uplifting okay what else have I been doing that's that's nice I've been reading a lot so the one that I picked up when all of this stuff started or not when it started like maybe about three or four weeks ago when it um shit started getting real here was Resilient by Rick Hansen and it's great because it's really easy to read and it makes you feel good and then I read an article in the Financial Times over the weekend by Arundhati Roy, who wrote The God of Small Things. It's like one of my favourite books. And it reminded me of how much I love the way that she writes. And so then I just downloaded the book that she wrote in 2016. It is called The Ministry of Utmost Happiness. Oh, that's a beautiful name. Yeah, but I think knowing her, it's going to be dark. <laughs> we can't pull you out of this darkness. I always think... Because I'm quite a serious person, even though I'm quite silly all the time. Like I always listen to heavy things and read heavy things and know about all of the um, trauma that's happening in any corner of the world. But I think one thing that I do is I really lean into the lightness and I'm very silly and I laugh a lot and I always try to joke around with people. And sometimes that means people think I'm a bit of an idiot, But I don't care because I think if you don't lean into lightness, then you really do succumb to darkness. And I think I always think of like my jolly aunties. Black women are so strong and they're always so like sort of happy and loud. And and I think that that that's part of it is because you know that there's so much darkness and so much trauma and so much pain. And if you don't throw yourself into the light, then you really do succumb to the darkness. It's important to feel the darkness sometimes, but... Something that I really try to do is is be overtly happy all the time. It's a beautiful way to be. It's like an amazing thing to be able to commit to and to be able to do on a consistent basis, particularly through a time like this. But I also wanted to ask you about food. You touched on the fact that you do like to cook. What's a comfort meal that brings you the most comfort in times like this? What do you do? What do you make? What's the thing you go to? Oh, my God. So I have a brand new go-to and I just made it last night. My friend Linda Mariano was like, I'd never had congee before because to me I was like, savoury porridge? What? That's crazy. Why would I have that when I can just have normal porridge, you know, with maple syrup or brown sugar or banana or whatever? And she's like, no, you have to try it. It's amazing. And so um, with, you know, everything sort of being in lockdown, I was like, well, now's the perfect time. And so I found this recipe on the New York Times cooking app, which is excellent. If you don't have it, you should get it because it's got all the basic things on there, but it's also got like cool new experimental things. Anyway, so Linda was like, try congee. And then so I was guided by her last night, but I made this congee with like chicken stock and rice. And then I just roasted some mushrooms and then chopped a bit of sesame oil and a bit of chili oil on top. And I got to tell you. It's amazing. 
It's very good gear. I'll send you the link. You have to make it. Sounds like something I would never normally make and I would absolutely love to make that. It is so yummy and I felt like a chef. I was like, I can't believe I made this. Like this is so good. The flavor explosion, oh. I love that so much. Brooke, our very last recommendation from you. We want to know what is one mantra? It can be a quote. It can be a rule that you live by for life that you are using to guide you right now. Uh, I think it's really important to remember that everything is really, really hard at the moment, but you can't control any of it. Like you can only control yourself and that's really, really important for people with anxiety or like high stress levels to remember that you can only do what you can do and everyone else will do what everyone else will do and the virus will do what it will do and the economy will do what it will do. You only have like control over your own life and so do things that like create a sense of routine and make you feel strong. I think that, that that's sort of what's getting me through at the moment because I want to save everyone, especially my grandparents. Like my pop wants to go to Coles. I can't just wrap him up in cotton wool and tell him to stay home for six months. I think that's a beautiful way to end because I think so much of the anxiety that people are feeling is that sense of hopelessness and helplessness. And I think if you actually acknowledge there's only so many things you can control then that anxiety does start to ease. So, Brooke Boney, thank you so much for joining us in isolation. We can't tell you how much we appreciate you giving us a 45-minute buffer to sort out this fucking technology (laughs) and sitting with us for this first time as we sort of get our heads around our also new reality with all of this. So thank you so, so much. Oh, you beautiful girls. Thank you so much for having me. Look after yourselves. Thank you so much for listening to this In Isolation episode of Shameless with Brooke Boney. If you'd love to hear more from Brooke, and I'm not surprised if you do, you can find her on Instagram at Boney Brooke. As for us, well, we are both independent podcasters who do all of Shameless, whether it's the newsletter or the twice-weekly podcast without the support of a network. So the best way to support us and support Annabelle is to show how you listen via your Instagram stories. Either take a screenshot of your podcast app and tell us your thoughts on this episode or we love seeing how you listen, whether that's on a walk with your dog, doing some baking or just procrastinating and not responding to any of those work emails. That is all from us. We'll be back in your ears on Monday with a wrap in the week that was in pop culture. If you want to keep in touch, find us on Instagram at Shameless Podcast or find us in the Facebook group, Shameless Podcast Community. We'll see you then. Bye, guys. Oh, hi, it's Annabelle Lee and Louis Hansen here. We are your hosts of Everybody Has a Secret. Woo! Woo! We are here essentially just to let you know that we drop episodes every week now. Every damn Friday morning, we are in your ears. That is so exciting. What a time <laughs> to be in your ear holes. So essentially, each episode, we unpack the real life secrets of our listeners. So this is for everyone who loves, you know, just a little bit of gossip in mm-hmm. their lives, which, let's be real, Annabelle, is all of us. It's absolutely all of us. Don't lie. You all love gossip. So if you want to listen to our show, please do head to your favourite podcast app and listen now. See you there. Bye.